Good morning. Let's, uh, let's ask the Lord to bless the opening of the word. Pray with me, please. Heavenly Father, as we open this word to us this morning, as we understand this, this blind man, as we understand your mercy, Lord, help us, help us to see our need for mercy. Help us to see our need for grace. Make your word come alive to us, Lord. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So we have, we have kind of a short section today. Um, so we're going to do a little bit of stage setting before we get into the text. So just a little bit of review. Up until now, Jesus has been going all around Israel and even into some of the neighboring countries doing what? He's been, he's been teaching, preaching, healing, performing miracles. What else has he been doing? Arguably, the thing that he is actually doing the most is training his disciples He's been preparing them for what their leadership in the church is going to look like after he ascends into heaven. But then after his, his last trip up into the northern part of the country, near the Sea of Galilee, Luke 9.51 tells us that Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem. In prophesying about this, Isaiah used a strong expression. He says, he set his face like flint. He set his face. What does that mean, like flint? Flint is a very hard stone. It is unyielding. This means that Jesus had an unwavering determination of purpose to go. It's the time in the journey where he must go there. He must go to Jerusalem. Do you remember the Mount of Transfiguration from a couple weeks ago? Jesus was talking to Moses and Elijah, and just a few verses earlier in that same passage in Luke 9, it says that Moses and Elijah were discussing with him all that he would accomplish in Jerusalem. He must go to Jerusalem for this to be accomplished. And so he, the ever-living God, Jesus, the God of the universe in human form, the one who deserves all glory, all dominion, all honor and praise, the one who all things obey. He sets his face toward Jerusalem where he will suffer the unjust cruelty of sinful men. And yet in spite of knowing what will happen to him there, our Savior sets his face to go like flint with a hardness he will not be moved from this purpose. Sometimes we take these things for granted, right? We've been Christians for a while. We know the gospel. It kind of becomes routine, old hat. Beloved, we have to appreciate this for what it is. Stop and look for a second. This is not... Think... think 
about not just his death and resurrection on the cross, but, but his life of perfect selflessness, perfect obedience. Think about an active, selfless obedience to turn in that direction. How hard would that be for us to, to turn that way? He had a resolve to go somewhere that he knew sinful men were going to arrest him, unjustly accuse him, torture him, embarrass him, and kill him. And he set an unwavering determination to go to that. For me. For you. So that's the part of the journey that they're on. Doesn't this give a little context to why he's spending so much time with his disciples, telling them, here's what's going to happen. It's been on his mind. The greatest injustice in history will happen in a matter of days. And he walks toward it willingly. So now let's go into our text for today. We're going to read Mark 10, verse 46 through 52. We're going to finish chapter 10 today. Mark 10, starting with verse 46, the word of the Lord. And they came to Jericho. And as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and said, Call him. And they called the blind man, saying to him, Take heart, get up, he's calling you. And throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. And Jesus said to him, What do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, Go your way. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. We'll start with verse 46. The very first phrase, it says, they came to Jericho. So you, you probably know by now that I like to look into these little geographical markers that are placed in the text. This particular marker here, as it's written, it doesn't have a whole lot to extrapolate from it. But I do, I do think it gives us a, a bigger picture that it's worth looking at Jericho and the place that it has in the heart of God's people. Many archaeologists and historians suppose Jericho to be the oldest city in human history, the oldest city. And it's definitely the oldest fortified city in human history. Okay, the oldest city with walls and defenses. Well, that's not incredibly relevant to our text today, I did find it interesting. You might also remember Jericho being the first city that the children of Israel overthrew when they entered into the conquest of Canaan. This is the place where God's people learned to trust him for victory after they had crossed the Jordan and entered into the promised land. Do you remember the story? 
He had them march around the city every day. And on the last day, they marched around it seven times, and they blew the trumpets and shouted as loud as they could, and the walls came tumbling down. So it was at at Jericho that, that God's people learned how to trust him as they entered into a new paradigm in their history and in their relationship with him. Can you imagine being there with them? They've just finished wandering around in the desert for 40 years. Their beloved Moses, he's dead. He's no longer with them. As a matter of fact, all the grandparents have died. That generation has all passed away. And then the very first place that they come to It's the oldest, most fortified city in the world. Imagine that. Wouldn't that place have a reputation? They'd get there and their, their knees would be knocking. And yet God says to them, I'm well aware of Jericho. And I'm well aware that you are entering into new territory here. But trust me. Obey me. I will show you my power. So think about the disciples now. Knowing what the disciples are about to to go through as they follow Jesus, do you think that's a fitting sentiment for them? Jesus doesn't go anywhere or do anything by accident. Even seeing the walls, walking through the city, hearing the name Jericho, that would remind any Jew of this beloved story in their history and how God wrought victory, not out of man's power, but out of his Do you know what he did require, though, for his power to be displayed? Their trust and their obedience. Let's keep moving. The rest of verse 46 says, He was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a great crowd. We've talked about these crowds before. They they can number up into the thousands, maybe even the tens of thousands. So they're leaving Jericho, and they've got this great multitude, this throng of people following Jesus and the disciples. And they're on their last leg of their journey toward Jerusalem. Jericho is one of the last places they'll come to before they get to Jerusalem. And then we're introduced to Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus. And he's sitting by the roadside. Who is he? Why is he sitting there? Well, he's a blind beggar, a blind beggar. Let's understand that. We've talked about this before, but I'll go over it again. Illnesses and disabilities were often considered judgments from God. But not to the, we talked about this before, but not to the extent that I want to share with you today. We're going to spend some time on this, okay? The Jews would view blindness as a particularly harsh curse. What's the blind person being cursed for? Why, why do they think that? Why do they think this is such a harsh curse? Throughout the Old Testament, over and over, God strikes people with blindness because of some offense committed against him. A few examples. Remember, remember Genesis 19? All the men in Sodom, they're standing around outside Lot's door, banging on the door, trying to get in. And they're eagerly hoping to violate the two visitors, right? The two visiting angels. What happened to those men? They were stricken with blindness. And even so, they continued groping around, trying to, trying to find their way. Before going into the promised land in Deuteronomy 28, Moses is laying out all of the blessings for God's people if they will only trust and obey him and do all the works of the law given to Moses. 
And so in Deuteronomy 28, when you get to verse 15, Moses says, But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God, or be careful to do all his commandments and his statutes that I command you today, then all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. What are the curses? There's a long list. It starts in verse 16. It's kind of a fun read, and I recommend you go and read it. We're not going to read the whole thing because it's long. If you skip down to verse 28, included in that list of curses, God says, verse 28, uh, Deuteronomy 28, the Lord will strike you with madness and blindness and confusion of mind, and you shall grope at noonday as the blind grope in darkness, and you shall not prosper in your ways And you shall be only oppressed and robbed continually, and there shall be no one to help you. Ouch. Blindness comes with madness, confusion, fumbling around in the dark with no help, no prosperity, oppression, and robbery. It's a harsh curse. Example after example in Scripture shows us it was not just Jews who thought of blindness as a curse, but just about everyone in the ancient Near East cultures did. Why did the Philistines put out Samson's eyes? Not just to punish him, but with cruelty, to degrade him and humiliate him so that he can only grope around with no help. Spiritually, the Jews might have, might have seen this curse on Samson as a punishment for his wandering eyes and his lust for the forbidden foreign women. We might even see it that way. Well, what if it wasn't, what if it wasn't a curse directly from God? But what if it was something that you were born with or something that happened to you, like you lost an eye in, in battle or an accident? Leviticus 21.18 says, a blind man can't be a Levitical priest. He can't be a Levitical priest because he has a blemish. He can't serve God with religious service because he has this really serious blemish. At best, the Jews would consider a blind man in a sort of permanent unworthiness. What about in the New Testament? What happened to Saul on the road to Damascus? Do you remember this? In Acts chapter 9, verse 7, a resurrected Jesus appears to Saul and says, Why are you persecuting me? And then he struck blind. Saul is struck blind for a while isn't he? Do you remember how zealous he was thinking that he was serving God by persecuting Christians? Saul, who would later become Paul, he would have understood this miraculous striking of blindness through the lens of an Old Testament scholar, just like we looked at just here, particularly the Levitical law that we talked about earlier. He would understand being miraculously struck blind as a punishment and as a sign that he's not qualified to serve the Lord. So you can understand a little better how they would view a blind person. It answers the question of why he's a beggar preemptively, doesn't it? Because it's an agrarian society. They farm and they fish. They have to make things to sell. It's all, it's all but impossible for a blind man to make a living in that kind of society. But it's even more than that. People who might otherwise be inclined to help take care of him, they're not going to associate with him. Why not? Because he's blind. He's cursed. He doesn't have God's favor. 
Who would want to take him in and feed him and clothe him and give him shelter? Who would want to take in the one that God has cursed? The one who is not worthy of God's favor. So you can see it from from their perspective. I'm spending a lot of time on this because I want you to understand where Bartimaeus is coming from. We can even look at a real-life picture of how Jews see blindness and, and, and the blind person's perspective. Turn to John 9. We'll look here for an example, starting in verse 1, John 9. Okay, John 9, starting with verse 1. As he passed by, this is Jesus. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Stop there. Do you see this? A man blind from birth. And yet the disciples assume he's blind because of sin because of disobedience to God. Look how much they're willing to assume about him just because he's blind. He or his parents must be some awful kind of sinners. God would know what an awful sinner he was going to be, so maybe that's why he struck him blind from birth. What does Jesus say to them in verse 3? Look, look what Jesus says. Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. Let's go back to Bartimaeus. I don't want to leave this question lingering in your mind like it was in mine. It's possible that Bartimaeus was cursed. That's possible. But is blindness always a curse from God? The answer I came to is that while particular blindness to an individual can be a particular curse from God in response to disobedience, it's not. Always. In fact, probably most of the time, we would say. Often blindness is just a result of what? Living under the curse of a fallen world. Romans 8.22, it says, All creation is groaning, as in labor pains. This world that we live in, it wasn't painful until sin entered. There was no corruption. No blindness. No death. So some people, many people, are blind simply because they're suffering the effects of a fallen world. But I want you to know something else, too. In his compassion, God actually has a specific concern toward people who are afflicted with blindness. Look at a couple of Old Testament laws that exist just to protect people who are blind. Look at these. Leviticus 19.14 Do not curse the deaf or put a stumbling block in front of the blind. But fear your God, I am the Lord. Deuteronomy 27, 18. Cursed is anyone who misleads the blind man on the road, and all the people shall say, Amen. Do you hear what it's saying? Don't be cruel to those who can't defend themselves. Don't afflict the blind further than they're already afflicted. Don't add to their misery. In the Leviticus verse we just read, why does he say, I'm the Lord? Why does he say that? 
It's a reminder to the people. Judgment and curses aren't your domain. They're mine. Don't add misery. Whether they're under judgment, whether they're miserable, the difficulty of their life, that is my sovereign prerogative. It's for my purposes. In Exodus 4, when Moses is arguing with God, saying, I'm not eloquent, can't you choose someone else? Can't you get somebody else to be your representative? And then God says in verse 11, Exodus 4, Then the Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute, deaf, or seeing, or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? God ordains blindness for some. And why? Just like Jesus said in John chapter 9, that the works of God might be displayed in him for better or for worse. So back to Bartimaeus again. We don't know how long he's been blind. We don't know if it was an accident or came from a disease. We don't know if he was cursed specifically by God or whether he's just suffering the effects of a fallen world. But the Jews thought that they knew. He must be a great sinner, or at the very least, he's somehow displeasing to God or unfit to glorify God. So he would have been looked down upon, not associated with few friends, if any, if any at all. The parallel passages in in Matthew and Luke, and I recommend studying these on your own, they say that there was another blind guy with him. That might be his only friend. Maybe they're not even friends. Maybe they just sit next to each other on the road outside the city because that's the only place blind beggars are allowed to sit. He didn't have fellowship with God's people. How tragic for a Jew. You think about that? How tragic for a Jew. The people who know that they're in covenant with God together as his special chosen people. And this man, Bartimaeus, is not welcome. Verse 47 and 48, we'll read them together. This is Bartimaeus. When he heard it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. First, I want to deal with the crowd's response. Because we just understood how they would have one like that. Doesn't that make a little bit more picture now for you? They rebuked him. This rebuke is the same word used to describe when Jesus rebukes a demon. Do you remember from our story about the wind and the waves and and how Jesus rebuked them? This rebuke necessarily comes with authority. You can't rebuke unless you have authority to do that. This just speaks to how low on the totem pole Bartimaeus is as a blind man. The whole society looks on him with contempt and they assume his low status. Some of your translations might say that they were sternly telling him to be quiet. Like a parent might say to an unruly child, you can hear the disrespect in their voices almost. Bartimaeus, shut up! Be quiet! Jesus, don't worry about him. He's just the town beggar, and he's blind. Do you hear how little they think of him? 
They're telling him to be quiet. Now let's go back to what he said when he cried out. He heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth. Do you remember how many times we've seen that Jesus' fame has spread? We're nearing the end of his ministry now. Three years he's been walking around teaching, healing. This is the first blind man in Mark, but we know that there were others from the other Gospels. For instance, the guy in John 9 that we just studied a few minutes ago. Bartimaeus has been sitting outside the city on the road here, outside Jericho, maybe for years, hearing what people would talk about as they travel between Jerusalem and Jericho. Maybe just overhearing snippets of conversations. They certainly weren't including him. But he picked up enough to know that someone named Jesus of Nazareth was healing lepers, making the lame to walk, the deaf to hear, the mute to see, the mute to speak, and the blind to see. Isaiah associates these specific healings with the messianic kingdom, the Messiah. Bartimaeus knew when he heard a story about someone giving sight to the blind that the long-awaited Messiah has come. Can you imagine his wonder? He hears a story like this and then he's amazed. He knows the promised Messiah is walking to and fro around Israel. What wonder that would bring to him, even if he had no one to share it with. And then one day he's sitting on the road, begging like he normally does, and he hears the commotion, just starting off in the distance. Sounds like a lot of people, maybe thousands. And then they start to approach, and it gets louder. And pretty soon they're walking past him. It's like when you go to a conference. Maybe you've been to a Christian conference or been to one for work. You go to a conference and you're standing in the great hall. And there's 3,000 people having conversations all around you. And you can only catch little snippets of them. But somehow, in spite of that, he hears someone say, in all of that, it's Jesus of Nazareth. And to his amazement, the Messiah that he has heard about and that he already has faith in, has just walked right past him. Did you see what Bartimaeus called Jesus while he cried out? Jesus, son of David. The son of David means the Messiah. All the Jews know this, that the Messiah would come from the line of David. Bartimaeus doesn't beat around the bush. He already knows Jesus is the Messiah. So what does he cry out for? Did you see what he said in the verse? Son of David, have what? Have mercy on me. Have mercy. He asks for mercy from God's Messiah. The cultural assumptions about him, accusations against him that he's blind because God has cursed him, we don't know if that's true. Sometimes blindness is a curse from God, sometimes it's not. That's not ours to speculate about, just like it wasn't theirs. Honestly, it doesn't really matter here, but we can certainly understand that this man, after years maybe a lifetime of being shunned by family, friends, neighbors, countrymen, the whole society, he understands that his greatest need is mercy from the promised Messiah. He knows he needs to have right relationship with God. 
and fellowship with God's people. When he's asking for mercy, he's crying out to God. Maybe he doesn't even know exactly what it is that he needs. Do you notice he doesn't expect or demand that his sight would be restored? He doesn't ask for that. As he's crying out to God, a simple prayer. Have mercy. All he knows, all he knows is that he needs mercy from God and that the Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth, is the one whom, through whom mercy can be received. That's all he knows. So let's talk about mercy for a few minutes. I think most of us probably have a, a working definition, definition of mercy, but let's explore it a little bit. The word mercy is in the Bible countless times. This particular word here is used in the New Testament, but the concept of mercy is used in the Old Testament many times too, usually describing God as merciful or possessing mercy towards someone. There it's often translated as kindness or loving kindness and sometimes even steadfast love, like the psalm we read earlier. Isn't that interesting? It's a type of kindness, but mercy can't exist in a vacuum. Mercy is something that can only happen when the parties are not on equal footing. When one has something against the other, like when someone commits a crime and they have to make up for what they did. There's also usually a difference in power, right? One here and, and one lower. Sometimes by the nature of the stations that the parties occupy, like when you commit a crime, the government can punish you because they have the authority to do that. They occupy the station of authority. Or when you're a child and you deserve punishment, it's your parents' authority to discipline you. You know what's interesting? It, it, it means that instead of giving us what we deserve, God has kindness toward us. Loving kindness, even. Steadfast love. Instead of punishment, kindness. Instead of retribution, kindness. Instead of making us pay back what we owe, love and kindness. Where would we be without God's mercy? Romans 5.12, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. After Adam and Eve sinned and death and corruption entered nature, we're all born with a debt to God. By our very nature, we have no standing before him other than to deserve his wrath. And if that's not enough, as individuals, we continue to sin against him according to our sin nature. All of mankind, along with creation, is corrupted and deserves death. As individuals, each of us has debt of sin against a holy God who cannot abide sin. And we deserve death. Do you know that it's only by his mercy that the world has not already been destroyed? It's only by his mercy that you were born at all. Thomas Watson said, every time you draw your breath, you suck in mercy. Do you understand this better now? Mercy is kindness when the giver of mercy has no obligation to be kind. And in fact, he has every reason not to be. 
He doesn't have to forgive our debts, but he forgives them anyway. That's mercy. That's what Bartimaeus is asking for. He understands his position before a holy God and the Messiah who he has sent. So he doesn't petition Jesus for anything other than mercy. How often do you pray like that? Think about it. You believers, you better think about that. How often do you pray like that? But if you're not a believer, I want you to know something. You ought to know something. That's the only prayer of yours that God will listen to. Think of it this way. Romans, think of it this way. Romans 5.10 says that unreconciled sinners are enemies of God. Colossians 1.21 says that in, in an unrepentant state, we were hostile toward him. There's a hostility and an enmity, enmity between us and God. If you're at war with another nation and you're losing badly, can you walk into the throne room of the enemy king and ask him for favors? Can you make demands? No. What's the only request that that king will listen to? When you come to him and you, in, in humility, you ask for peace. You ask him for his mercy. You plead with him for his mercy. Bartimaeus might not know very much, but he knows that the Messiah is here and he knows that he needs God's mercy. Do you know that you need God's mercy? Have you cried out to God for his mercy? He hears that prayer. Psalm 51.17 tells us that God will not despise a contrite heart and a broken spirit. Now that you understand Bartimaeus, do you think his spirit was broken? Was he downtrodden and suffering? He knows he needs the Messiah to lift him up and make things right. Do you see his contrite spirit? He doesn't make demands. He just asks for mercy. Have you asked God for mercy? Do you plead with him for it? Even now? Maybe you've already received mercy. Thank him and ask for more. How do we know that he can grant it? Because he's rich in mercy. Amen? Amen. His mercy, his steadfast love, they endure forever. He never runs out. Ephesians 2, 4 says, God is rich in mercy and abounding in steadfast love. He doesn't just have a little mercy. He has a lot. He's the author of mercy. He's rich in mercy. He's the God who has a tender mercy toward us. That's Luke 1. His compassion and love for us is displayed in his mercy. His mercy is great. 1 Peter 1, 3. It's kindness that we don't deserve in spite of his lack of obligation. We talked about what happened with the crowd. They tried to hold Bartimaeus back. And yet knowing that Jesus is his only hope, he persists in crying out to God. Bartimaeus' environment is conspiring to keep him away from the presence of the Lord. But he persists anyway. Don't let anything get in the way of your prayer for mercy. We have an enemy. He will tell you lies. He'll say something like this. He'll say, you don't deserve his mercy. 
Don't bother asking. The first part is true. The second part is a lie from the pit, and don't you ever believe it. You'll lie to yourself. You'll lie to yourself. And he'll say, he doesn't want to give me mercy. Your memory of your sin will creep into your mind and, you'll, and tell you that your sin is too much. You're too far gone. There's no coming back. His mercy is not enough for how great my sin is. It's not true. Persist in your prayer for mercy. Keep asking. Don't let anything stop you. Verse 49 and 50. Jesus stopped and said, Call him. Look at this. The Lord heard his prayer and granted him an audience. And they called him and said to him, Take heart. Get up. He's calling you. The environment changes, doesn't it? He persisted in his prayer for mercy and now he's welcomed into the presence of the Lord. This one Bartimaeus who is shunned and downtrodden and knows his greatest need and cries out a simple prayer for mercy, he's welcomed into the presence of the Lord. Throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. Look how beautiful. Jesus calls him and he comes. He threw off his cloak. Why did he throw off his cloak? It's his beggar's cloak. We have a lot of homeless people here in the South Bay, right? Outside, you see them all the time. Have you ever seen a homeless person really up close and you interacted with them? Look how haggard they are. They live outside. They're covered from head to toe. They're hardly presentable. They smell really bad. Have you ever seen a homeless person move quickly? When's the last time you saw that? No, they move slow because they're tired and they're worn out. Their clothes are worn. They're ugly. Bartimaeus has got his heavy beggar's cloak. Maybe his only form of shelter sometimes. It encumbers him. And while it might give him comfort, it's also a reminder of his status as a castaway. It's probably worn out and it probably has holes in it. It's ugly. It's his beggar's cloak. And he doesn't want it to encumber him as he approaches the Lord. So he springs up, takes it off so that nothing hinders him from rushing to be in the presence of God. When Jesus calls you, do you keep your beggar's cloak on? Are you encumbered by something? Or do you spring up and take it off so that nothing hinders you from rushing into his presence? We Christians, when we hear him calling us, to come into his presence and spend time with him in prayer, or even sometimes just to enjoy his word or meditation. How often are we encumbered? And we move slow, or we don't move at all. We just stay where we are and we keep doing what we're doing, usually nothing of value, and we don't go to him. When you hear the Spirit nudging you, when you hear the Lord beckoning, come spend some time with me. Come into my presence. Spring up. Throw it off. Rush to him. Turn off your TV. Put down your book. Put away your video game. Put away your selfish thoughts. Rush and go be with him. Go into the presence of the Lord. Verse 51. 
Jesus said to him, What do you want me to do for you? We just heard that question before, didn't we, last week? James and John asked Jesus if he would do something for them. And he asked them the exact same question in response. Look at last week's verse. This is really neat. Just go up one paragraph. In verse 36, Jesus asks James and John the same exact question. It's even the same Greek vocabulary and verbs. The same exact verbs. Do you remember how tenderly he dealt with James and John, even though their request to him was completely selfish and inappropriate? Look how tenderly he treats Bartimaeus. How gentle. How kind. Do you see even in Jesus' response in this question how mercy was given? This is a question that Jesus asks someone that he loves. Someone that's welcome in his presence. And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. Bartimaeus already asked for mercy and it was already granted. What's he asking for now? Do you remember how his blindness is a stigma, a reproach, the mark of a sinner? the thing that keeps him out of fellowship with God's people. He says, Lord Jesus, please take away my reproach. Take away my shame. Take away the marks of being under the curse. Lord, please grant to me fellowship with you and with your people. Please give me back my sight. He's also asking to see the Lord Jesus, who he has believed in, even though he has not seen him. He's asking to see him. Bartimaeus' faith came by hearing, didn't it? He's already asked for mercy and he's been given mercy. In the second request, he asks for grace. What is grace? Some of you know the short definition. Pastor Cecil used to say it all the time. Unmerited favor. It's related to mercy, but it's not the same thing. Mercy is the kind of forgiveness of is the kindness of forgiveness of a debt or an offense given from one who has no obligation to give it to someone who doesn't deserve it. But grace, grace is a gift from a generous giver given to show undeserved favor to the one that he loves. Bartimaeus asked for mercy and he received it. Then he asked for God's grace and we're going to see him receive it. And what exactly does he receive? Verse 52, Jesus said to him, go your way, your faith has made you well. There's so much confusion about this. People will misuse this verse to justify a name it and claim it health and wealth gospel. False teachers will say, if you're not getting healed of your physical afflictions and diseases, it's just because you don't have enough faith. That's wrong. Put it out of your mind. That's not what this verse means. That is poison. That idea is poison. And it does great injury to the beauty that's in the text here. The King James translates this better. It says, your faith has saved you. It's not the physical healing that's getting better. It's not his sight that was made well. It was his soul. It was the shackles of sin and the curse being taken away. Jesus is talking about his spiritual state before God, his justification. 
his knowledge that he was lost and had no hope. But he knew that a Messiah could make things right and take away his reproach and grant him fellowship with God and with God's people. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. And if you don't have this memorized, go and memorize it today. Really. By grace you have been saved through faith. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Do you see that? 2 Timothy 2, 25. It says that God is the one who grants repentance. We don't conjure this faith up on our own. Even us conjuring the faith would be our own works, wouldn't it? Just try harder. That's not true. That would be our works. God doesn't want us to boast in our great faith. He wants us to boast in him, the object of our faith, a faith that he gives to us. We're going to finish here soon. Did you know what Jesus said to him before he talked about the faith. Did you notice that? He said, go your way. The King James is even more direct. Jesus tells him, go away. I thought that was kind of funny. Jesus isn't being rude, okay? Just understand that this is Jesus. You can see the picture. Jesus is looking at him. He's saying, Bartimaeus, your life is restored and made new. You can go do what you want to do now. You don't have to be a blind beggar anymore. What does Bartimaeus do? What else could he do? He followed him. He became a disciple. We don't ever hear his name again in the rest of Scripture, but we know a few things about him. We know that when Bartimaeus cried out for mercy, Jesus granted him entry into the Lord's presence no longer God's enemy. We know that when he asked to recover his sight, Jesus granted him grace, took away his reproach. He was no longer under the curse. And he was given fellowship with God and God's people. And we know that in response, Bartimaeus followed him. If you repent of your sin and you ask God for mercy, he will grant it. And if you ask him for grace and to take away your reproach and give you fellowship with his people, he hears that prayer and he loves it and he will answer. And if you ask him for mercy and grace and you receive them from God, you and me will be praising God together with Bartimaeus when we enter into glory to be with the Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for giving that man his sight. But more so, thank you for glorifying yourself and answering his prayer for mercy. May we know our greatest need and echo his prayer. And when we ask for mercy and we receive it, Lord, may we again ask for more. Thank you, God, in Jesus' name.